0: First readings are from Genesis the first one from chapter 1 which is uh, verses 26 to 28 and then we'll be moving on to chapter 2 at verse 15 so Genesis 1 starting verse 26 Then God said let us make man in our image in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, from verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word.
1: Our Father, you are very good. What wonderful... Truths we can sing of you, for you are so good. You are our delight, our reward. You are everlasting, never failing. You're a redeemer. We can call you, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, my God. Those are wonderful truths. And you're a wonderful God. So please also, as we've prayed in our songs, would your spirit come and open our eyes so that your word may dwell richly within us. So we do become more like your wonderful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his great name. Amen. Now, decades ago, Simone de Beauvoir uh, made the famous quote observation, one isn't born a woman, one becomes one. By which, of course, uh, she meant, or she drew a distinction between uh, our sex, which you're born with, it's down to your chromosomes, your XXXY, and your gender, male or female, which is purely a cultural construct. You're born into a certain society and that imposes expectations of maleness upon you or imposes what it means to be a female upon you. So one isn't born a woman, one becomes one. In uh, modern language, Um, it's called gender plasticity. We have a plastic gender. We we be molded any way which uh, our culture pushes us. Is that right? There's a famous case in uh, academic circles of David Raymer. You may have heard of him. Uh, There have been documentaries made about him. David Raymer was born in 1966. Uh, Aged six months, a fairly straightforward operation went wrong, which meant that his penis was badly burnt and dysfunctional. Uh, a year later, his parents took him uh, to a psychologist um, because they were wondering what to do with their, their boy. And so they went to see a psychologist, Dr. John Money. He was a, a leading theorist in gender plasticity. Again, the idea that our gender is just formed culturally. And so he persuaded the parents that the best thing for this boy, David, was to remove all his male organs, construct female organs for him, and raise him as a girl, which they did. So he had complete anatomical uh, operation. All his male organs removed, female ones, put in, And so they renamed their boy instead of David, Brenda. And they raised him as a girl. About age 9 to 11, he started to kick back a little bit. He insisted on... Keeping the <laughs> standing up to go to the loo he 'd play with trucks and balls and wasn 't interested in dolls by the time he got to age eleven, he completely refused to see Dr. Money anymore. He decided he 'd hated this man and he refused to take his uh, estrogen um, uh, supplements, which he was meant to be taking and By the time of age fourteen, he'd rejected it all completely he'd had his breasts removed and again had gender uh, reassignment surgery. And so age 14 was returned to being a male and uh, called himself David again. For a further 20 years, Dr. Money celebrated his success. Didn't tell anyone that it, the operation had to be reversed. And this was a celebrated case. Look what you can do with gender reassignment. We can mold people by their culture. Raise David a girl, give him the right anatomy, and he is a girl. Until 20 years after he'd been returned to being a boy, David spoke out and said, that's just not true. It's not true. But academic doctrine and thinking had just moved on and rolled off the back of this. And so we now live in a culture where many would say, it's just plastic, your gender. There is no male or female. It's just what's imposed upon you. A few years ago, despite uh, marrying, despite having a family, uh, David Raymer took his life. Just the confusion of who he was eventually got on top of him. You're not born a male; you just have imposed upon you. Is that right? Well, let me just—I mean, that's a very sort of cerebral case. In one sense, it's an academic one. Let me make, just make it really simple. Um, so, in conversations that came up uh, last week, uh, my seven-year-old son to me—a seven-year-old—said to me, "So, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up to be a man?" They don't mind. It's not because I think he lacks a role model or anything like that. It's easy to tease. Easy. <laughs> but what do you say to that question? What would you say? Beyond the obvious anatomical differences, what do you say? And for many, the answer is nothing. What does it mean to be a man? you have different appendages is that it what does it mean to be a male what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be a woman now the bible speaks very clearly about that it's not popular in our culture but we see the bible's answer is that the men and women have equal dignity in god's sight but they are different they are overlapping but not reversible or interchangeable ways of being human. Of course, many in our culture would hate that, hate that, and be entirely, absolutely contemptuous of a biblical position. And yet, it struck me this week, we live in a culture where Fifty Shades of Grey and that trilogy associated with it can happily sit at the top of the bestsellers list. The story of a woman who is brutally dominated by a man, in a way that the Bible would utterly condemn, I think people quite happily read that. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. It's good. Yeah, lots of. Yeah, do you like it? Yeah, I quite like it. I quite like a man like that. Really? Gosh. People could be utterly contemptuous of the Bible, and yet that is okay as literature. We're in a bit of a mess. One of the uh, one of the shocking quotes I read this week oh, that was very striking. One author put it this way: "The sexual revolution." Is, excuse me. The sexual revolution is over. And everyone lost. And what we have now is a generation of sluts and of cads released from the chains of marriage, responsible to no one, claiming great freedom, living miserably. And everyone's lost. Golly. Now if you join us now, we're just doing a little topical series. So it's a bit of a break from the norm and we're working our way through, uh, parts of the Bible. It's a topical series. And, uh, uh, we call it Myths, Myths About Marriage, really. So last week, it was just that, Myths About Marriage. We looked at a number of things. I guess, if you weren't here, the headline is, Marriage is not an ultimate, is not the ultimate. God is ultimate. He is wonderful and worthy of praise. And marriage is one way of serving Him, as is singleness. And they're both good ways of serving the living God. But don't make marriage your ultimate, it'll always disappoint you goes a bit more than that, Um, but um, I I guess that would kind of be the headline. Tonight then we're thinking about myths about gender, and the slight difference again this week, we're only talking about one myth, it's a myth about gender, it doesn't quite work as well as a title, but the myth is, there's no difference between male and female, and the Bible will insist, yes there is. Now again, let me say up front, if you... If you don't take the Bible seriously, if you don't hold the Bible to be true and authoritative, this is strange in our culture. In 21st century, liberal, metropolitan London, it's unusual to assert these things. But all I want to do tonight is remind some or show some, just simply one or two statements that the Bible teaches and point out that these are wonderful, wonderful things. It's a wonderful way of living and relating as men and women. Gender is a massive topic. I think I may be overstretching myself tonight, but let's have a go and see where we get on. We'll take some questions afterwards at about 8.20. So if you've got something burning, we'll come back to them. Three things to say. Very simple. Uh, Men and women, equal in dignity. They have different roles, just like God. Equal dignity, different roles, just like God. Let's take them in turn then. First, equal dignity. So uh, Larry kindly read the first little extract. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1 stresses equality, the equal dignity of men and women. Animals are not made in the image of God. Men and women are made in the image of God. Men are not more in the image. They are equally created in God's image. there's a sense in which, the way it's described here in in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a sense in which men and women are a bit like glass and foil. You look in a sheet of glass, and you get some sort of vague reflection. You look in a bit of foil, you get a vague reflection. You put the two together, you get a good reflection. A male and female together image God to the world. That's the emphasis here. When men and women work together in relationship with God and one another, they image God to the world. Now I guess that's acceptable to one and all. Some obvious points from that. Uh, men and women are of equal worth for eternity. Of course, in contrast to some non-Christian cultures, no one can feel, if attempted to, proud or superior for being a man, or vice versa in any sense, equal. Equal in status for eternity. God determines the worth of men and women and says before me, you are worth equal dignity. I declare that upon you. So obvious little things in marriage, it's fairly obvious. uh, Male and female will listen to the viewpoints of their spouse. They will value their gifts. They will honor them in public and in private. Always seek to bring benefit to their spouse, not harm in how they speak of them and to them. And of course, in general, men and women need to listen to the viewpoints of the other sex. Genesis one leaves no grounds for disparaging, mocking. Very easy to do, even in the sort of "all the men are like this." Uh, you know, there's no grounds for that, really. All the women are like that. Well, not all. Um, there's no grounds for sort of disparaging, criticizing. Equal worth. Worthy of great dignity. I guess hopefully that's fairly uncontroversial, but I just want to say it's declared right there in Genesis chapter 1. Male and female have equal dignity. Genesis chapter 2 has a different stress. It's complementarity. Equal in dignity, but different to complement one another. They're not interchangeable. Of course at this point is when the Bible teaching people become slightly like nervous about, it can become unpopular. But just want to say something that's fairly obvious, you, you do realise that not so much in the psychological or sociological arena, but certainly in the scientific and medical arenas, this is fairly uncontroversial that men and women are different, not just anatomically, but mentally. That's becoming increasingly uncontroversial in science. So, recent report, um, Cambridge University, headed by a man called Baron Cohen, not Sasha Baron Cohen, that would be odd. Um, uh, but uh, he led the team from Cambridge. A 24-year, excuse me, a 24 hours old research designed that boys prefer looking at a mechanical mobile rather than a picture of a face. They like gadgets more than people. Age, age 24 hours. Isn't that extraordinary? Girls respond much more to the sound of humans in distress. If there's another baby in distress, a 24-year-old girl will notice and sort of look, try and look over. A bloke will just sleep on. <laughs> a bloke, 24-hour old, one day old. Sort of striking. At three days, girls maintain eye contact with a silent adult twice as long as boys. If an adult talks, even longer. Interesting. Actually, at the British Psychological Society conference last year, there was a paper presented, again, on this sort of thing. A range of, they did an experiment with a, a, a large range of, um, of toddlers from 9 to 18 months. It wasn't the most sophisticated experiment. They lined them up, and about a meter in front of them, they put a range of toys. And again, overwhelmingly, the boys crawled for the balls and the trucks, and the girls crawled for the dolls. And they're saying, for a nine-month-old, that's a little too early to have been created by culture, that those are the things you go for. Just interesting. Again, in teaching theory, this is entirely uncontroversial. Teachers know boys, girls, different. They are different. And so uh, I was reading um, a Scottish government uh, education report uh, quote, there is a growing acceptance that there are psychological differences between the genders that affect the way that males and females think, communicate, and behave. Gender, differenta- excuse me, gender differentiation is essential for quality teaching. Which is interesting, isn't it? So from 24 hours upwards, unless... I don't want to overstate this, but unless there is a fairly rigid, fixed dogma, most people accept men and women are different. Not different in value, not different in status, but different. There is such a thing as male and female. We may only be 3% difference, but that difference goes down into every single cell and chromosome of the body, genetically. And it affects us. We are male and female. So you look at Genesis 2, and it makes just that point. Now, I think you'd have to say, of Genesis 2, it's primarily talking about Male and female relating in marriage. So the conclusion of the matter, uh, Genesis two chapter, excuse me, Genesis two verse twenty-four. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Primarily talking about marriage, but when this is quoted in the New Testament, it is opened up to wider range of relationships, particularly those in the church. And it seems to me, if you read this text in a fairly straightforward way, there are a number of things you would obviously notice. Let me pick out a number one. Adam is created first. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. The woman is created second, chapter 2, 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place, formed the woman. Adam is formed, the man is formed first from the dust. The woman is formed differently from the man. There's just a difference there in how they're created. Why did God do it that way? She derives her being from him in Genesis 2. It is different. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament will pick up on that fact, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, and say that matters. The fact that man was created first. That does have an impact upon relationships. That's one little thing. Um... Adam is given the task first would be another. So before Eve exists, chapter 2.15, God tells Adam what to do. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He's given the instruction, and then Eve is brought in to help him. A third little thing. Adam receives the commands, chapter 2 verse 16, that Eve does not. Chapter 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you'll surely die. Eve never hears that from God. Adam has to tell her. There's a difference. Adam names Eve. Verse 23. He calls her woman. Adam, now the thing would be, Adam requires Eve. We're told that the purpose of her creation, chapter 2, verse 18, is as a helper for him. A whole number of things. Adam is created first. Adam is given the task, not Eve. Adam is given the command, not Eve. Adam is the one who names the creatures, and indeed the woman. Eve is created for him. When you get to the New Testament, it becomes even more explicit that Adam is the representative of mankind. So in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, he is the head of humanity. Not Adam and Eve jointly. He's the one who's held responsible. The Bible says there's a difference between the man and the woman. All this, of course, is before sin enters the world. This is not due to the contaminating influence of sin. It's there beforehand. This is the man and the woman relating rightly. The husband humbly leading the woman who lovingly helps to seek him and help him as they serve God's purposes together. They complement one another. We get that. Numerous leads for your TV and DVD. They have a male end and a female end, and they go together. to male to female lead, because they fit, complement. You have two male leads, it just doesn't work no matter how hard you bash the things together. You, know, you get that sort of language. They complement one another. Uh, briefly uh, just, if you just briefly look at the impact in, of sin in Genesis chapter 3:16, again, it's striking. Uh, no time to go through it always, we're not really expounding a passage of the Bible. Uh, but chapter three, verse 16, here's the impact of sin when God curses the man and the woman. There's an obvious difference between how they're cursed. So chapter 3: 16, to the woman he said, "I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children." Your desire will be for your husband. He'll rule over you. It's the woman's relationships that are cursed. If you read on it, it's Adam's work that is cursed. There's a difference. And the difference or the impact here is that the woman is no longer a helper but a complementer. Excuse me, that's completely wrong. The woman is no longer a helper but a competitor. You will desire for your husband. Compete with him. And he'll rule over you. No longer a loving leader, but a dominant one. So at that point, the relationship's not fitting quite as well. The woman is competing and the man is dominating. It's all gone terribly wrong. Flip back now to Ephesians chapter 5. As I said, uh, about this time last year, we spent quite a long time going through Genesis 1-4, to uh, over three months. If you want to get into the detail of it, do go back, uh, you can listen to those. We're not doing that here, it's just looking at one issue, this issue of gender. When you get back to Ephesians 5, or get, turn to Ephesians 5, to, uh, page 1176, when Paul describes the role of wives and husbands... What happens when you become a Christian? What happens amongst the redeemed people of God? Our gender differences swept away. Once you become a Christian, it doesn't matter anymore. That's not what happens. But it is a return to relations before the fall. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse twenty two of chapter five. Husbands, verse twenty five, love your wives. It's a return to the way the relationships are meant to be. The woman as a helper to the man. The man lovingly leading the woman. So you become a Christian. You're restored to a relationship with God. You're redeemed. And what should male, female, certainly husband, wife relationships rather look like? What was they meant to back in creation, back in the Garden of Eden, relating rightly to one another again? It's not that these differences are swept aside. It just restored gloriously to how they're meant to be. Wives lovingly helping their husbands to serve God. Husbands sacrificially leading their wives as they seek to serve God together. Of course the, I again, mean, okay, we're not really getting into the detail here, but uh, wives submit to your husbands. Husband, love your wives. Does this mean that wives are not meant to love? Husbands, husbands are not meant to respect wives. No, 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 he's not not saying that, of course. There are overlapping ways of being human, but there is a difference here. So perhaps the sports team is a helpful analogy. You can have a captain of a sports team and a star player. Now the captain's role is to draw the best out of the star player and indeed the team. And if the captain rejects the advice, rejects the input of the star player, the team is weaker. He's a silly captain. Mind you, if the star player is a prima donna and refuses to listen to the captain, refuses to work for the team, again, the team suffers. And that's a fool as well. If you like your cricket, you may be thinking Kevin Peterson and his relationship with the England cricket team. But if you're a wise captain, you draw the best out of your star player. If you're a wise player, you play for the team. And that's how my wife describes our marriage. I may well be captain of it, but she is the star. And it's entirely fair. (laughs) It's entirely fair. And if I am wise, I will help her flourish and lead the marriage in a way that is good for us as a family. And if she's wise, she'll biblically seek to help me in my incompetence as it is sometimes. To spur me on. Now every husband knows that. Your wife brings resources, skills that we don't have. Makes you more human, if I can put it in in those terms. See, you see the world through a different gender. It's eye-opening. Now, the obvious, I mean, there's no time to go into the detail, but obvious, just one or two things. How is the wife to submit? It is as to the Lord, verse 22. As part of her reverence to the Lord. That's not unconditional obedience, of course not. Sometimes obedience to Christ will stop a wife obeying her husband. Husband comes home, honey, finances are tight, let's go rob a bank. At that point she says, no, no, I submit to Christ and not to you. Sin needs confronting and wives will do that to their husbands. A few weeks ago, I was fed up, I was flat, I was discouraged, I was listless. And um, I listed everything, all the burdens that were going on. And Carrie, uh, my wife, happily listened to them all and said, yes. And what I think you need to do is stop wallowing in your self-pity. Go and pray and trust the Lord. Entirely right. Entirely right. And I just, oh, you know, and I responded in a um, surprised but eventually grateful way. <laughs> It's entirely right. Sin needs confronting sometimes, and wives will do that. Just to be clear, that is not always the, the correct advice to give to a husband, just in case you're, you know, that's, you know, it depends on circumstances. Sacrifice, you know, so wives loving, submitting to husbands as to the Lord. And the husbands, the husbands were sacrificially loved in order to promote godliness. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Sacrifice. To make her holy, that's the purpose. Godliness. So the husband who is a servant will lead in marriage. Doesn't feel the need to initiate everything. But there is a general pattern of initiative to the marriage. Leading it. And for blokes, it's very easy if you're married to go to work and uh, drive things and lead things. And uh, feeling controlled in that scenario and get home and just be exhausted and say, whatever, whatever. And be lazy. It's very, very easy to do that. But the Bible here is outlining men who lead. Husbands who will fight for their wives. Die for their wives. Open their Bibles with their wives. Give a lead to the marriage, to the wives and to the children. Husbands are to lead to love their wives sacrificially. Now look, I've, I've, um, uh, I've uh, adapted a couple of pictures. This, this works for some and not for others. Um, so be gentle with these. But I've adapted a couple of pictures which might help. Let's talk about men first of all. So you've got two axes you can see. You can be proactive or passive. You can be a servant or you can be selfish. The godly man that the Bible wants to see is proactive, leads, in a serving way for the good of others. That is a godly man. Now you can make a number of mistakes as a bloke. You can be proactive and selfish. That is macho man. That is, I want to get my own way for my sake. That is the man who bullies his way into the boardroom and tramples on everyone else and expects the world to dance to his tune I'm in charge, sorted out so that my life is straightforward and I get what I want. If you have that in a marriage, disaster. Disaster. Okay? So you don't want to be a macho man. The other side of things, you can have Metro Man. He's passive, but servant. He has lots of product from the body shop and all that sort of... Um, <laughs> so he's very modern. But the more important thing, he he's nice... He's better than macho man, possibly in some ways, but he's weak. Never takes the marriage anywhere. Never leads the wife in godliness or never leads the wife in their marriage. And then you have adolescent man, passive and selfish. You can tell from being in the opposite corner that's never going to be good uh, from godly man. Passive and selfish, the 45-year-old who still plays with his Xbox when he gets home from work. Um, and thinks there's nothing wrong with that and leaves his family to sort their own lives out. Adolescent man. Lazy and selfish. That's not a great combination. Now, biblically, men want to be active in serving. It's true of marriage. true in all scenarios, but particularly true in the marriage scenario. Okay, that makes sense? If it doesn't work for you, ignore it. Don't worry. Let's go the other way, other way and look and think of uh, Women. So again, you have two, two axes, active, passive, supportive, or supplanting, seeking, seeking to replace husbands. A Genesis 3 competing. So the godly, I mean, maybe wife, I should have put wife in there and, and husband, that's maybe my mistake, because we're mainly talking about that arena. So therefore the godly wife, you can put it in those terms, that might be safer, is supportive and actively supportive of her husband. It will initiate some things, will help. The timid woman is supportive but passive. And actually overly, if you go too far in that direction, that is pretty miserable. You just become, yes dear, whatever you say dear. Yes, of course we'll rob the bank dear, if that's what you think is best dear. You don't want to be that. The other side, active and supplanter is the strident wife. Who wears the trousers. We can think of the picture. Who henpecks who nags her way into getting whatever she wants. I know I'm caricaturing, I know, I know. Be, be gentle, he's just trying to help. And then the complete opposite side, um, uh, the manipulative wife, who is a supplanter but does it passively. So it doesn't have the arguments, but just gets her own way by, uh, I guess the Bible would say, by being a dripping tap, by just gently winding away now is that helpful i don't know do you know your character are you a sort of driven forceful bloke okay good but then do you serve or do you serve yourself ask you know you can ask those sort of questions easy to go wrong we can sin in different ways but maybe that's of some use where are you in that diagram i wonder okay a couple of other things then, we're, then we're done a little question, but an obvious one that may come out of this. Okay, this complementarian view that the Bible suggests, men and women, equal in dignity, but different roles, how how does that work out for singles, not married? Well, of course, what's this? the common task of both singles and married is to serve the living God. That is our common task, to become more like Christ so we can serve him better. And, of course, the obvious place is to look if you're single in the Bible, you could look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is single and manages to serve his father very well or the Apostle Paul. The thing that all of them would have in common is that they seek meaningful relationships as a source of strength in fulfilling their God-ordained tasks. They don't seem to do it on their own. That may be a really obvious point to make. Even Jesus, when he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, calls his closest disciples and says, can you pray at the same time? They fail. But there's something very natural about gathering. You need like-minded. You need decent quality friendships. We need those to serve God. Obvious point. But then how is this sort of complementarian picture expressed by singles? I think in a church setting it's more straightforward. In a church setting, uh, I guess the biblical picture would be single women should look to elders to lovingly serve them. They're under the authority of elders in a good church, and hopefully the elders are lovingly serving them. So everyone is under some authority. We're under the authority of God. In a church, it's all under the authority of elders. That's We're accountable for how we live. But practical little thing, if you go away in a mixed gang, as someone will do, particularly in the summer holidays, you go away, a group of singles go away in a mixed gang, I would have thought that if we're trying to live this out, the single men should seek to exercise a very gentle leadership. Not as a husband, not as a father, not as an elder, but a gentle leadership in the group as the men. I would have thought that sort of thing would be appropriate. Male and female, equal in dignity, equally made in the image of God. Yet we present that image in slightly different ways. Different roles. Just like God. So equal in dignity with different roles, but just like the living God. Differences in gender, male and female, roles, husbands to lead, servants, servant leadership as heads and wives to submit to that sort of leadership. That's a reflection of the nature of God himself. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in glory, equal in dignity, and yet not interchangeable. They have different roles. So before the creation of the world, it is the Son who is the one who will be sent into the world as a Savior. 1 Peter 1.20, 1 1 before the creation of the world... And then at the end of history, 1 Corinthians 15, the Son hands over all authority to the Father. This is not just a temporary thing that Jesus is, submits to his Father while here on earth. It's before the creation of the world. It's at the end of history. This is an eternal aspect of God himself. Father is in authority. Son and Spirit submit. But they're equal. In dignity, equal in status, so headship and submission this difference in roles it doesn 't begin in genesis one it doesn 't begin with the Apostle Paul in the new testament it 's existed in God eternally, and so if you say something like la David Cameron, I guess this week, the church just needs to get with the program. You just need to make more progress. You're, you, I hate the fact that, the, you know, you talk of different roles for men and women. In the end, what you end up, you're, you're, what you're saying there is, God needs to get with the program. God needs to change. The fact there are different roles, father, son and spirit, completely outdated in the 21st century. God, you need to get up to speed with our culture. And God, I hate the way you're formed. I hate the way you talk about there are differences between the different members of the Trinity. And I don't think we want to say that about God himself. Ultimately, male and female he created them. It's a reflection of the fact that there is equal dignity between the members of the Trinity, and yet there is difference in roles. In 21st century culture, we think to have authority, great. To submit, terrible. But the Bible insists a relationship of authority and submission between equals, where there is a mutual giving of honor and love and respect, that is the most fundamental and glorious relationship that there is in the whole of our universe. Because that's the nature of God himself. Different roles, mutual love, respect and glory. It's at the heart of God. It's who he is. So just flick over one page. Let me read of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're done. Let me just read from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And Paul can describe Jesus this way. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God the Father exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, very nature God, didn't grasp after equality. It's part of his glory. Aren't you grateful he had a different role and pursued that? And so the Bible would say wives, Submit like Jesus submits to his father. Husbands, love your wives in a way that Jesus loves the church. In a week such as this week, and you may want to come back on this in questions, but when um, the Church of England brings this issue up into the front of the news, it's quite easy to be embarrassed, isn't it? Embarrassed that the Bible says there are different roles for men and women. Don't be embarrassed. It's a glorious truth that we're made differently, male and female. It's for our good. And God says when we live it out, when we live out the gender we're made to be, it's a wonderful thing. It's for our good. It's for our flourishing. It honors him. So don't be embarrassed. Male and female, he created them. There's a difference. It's a wonderful difference. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've created us, male and female, to complement one another. And that's a wonderful truth. Father, this evening we just scratched the surface of that and bounced around a little bit in the Bible. Help us to get our thinking clear, we pray. Forgive me if I've used unwise language um, in any sense. Would that not distract from the glorious truth that you've made us different? And as we embrace those differences, we flourish, and great glory goes to you. So, Father, for the marriages in particular, perhaps here tonight, would we have marriages where husbands love their wives sacrificially, where wives support and help their husbands? and There's a mutuality of respect and love, so they're better able to serve you to the praise of your name. Amen.